9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio, an interactive episode, an interactive webinar that will be an episode once we release it as a podcast. Today we're here to talk a little bit about a new book that I've written called Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. Uh, But since I wrote the book, it would be a little embarrassing for me to ask myself questions about it. Um, And so we thought instead of me being embarrassed, we'd embarrass Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who is our friend and who also has the added advantage of having uh, read the book. So Ed will moderate us through the next 40 or so minutes. Uh, and we uh, uh, are very glad for the presence of those who have chosen to join the webinar itself. You'll be able to post questions in the Q&A feature. And, uh, and you'll also get a book, a signed book. Uh, and I'll tell you how to get that book made out to you at the very end of the podcast. Um, but I'll make it out to whomever you want uh, because we're all, you know, friends here. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is an experiment on doing interactive webinars. And if it goes OK, well, we may just do others for that. Uh, for the experiment, let's now turn it over to Ed. Hi, Ed. Thank you, David. And hi, David. And um, just to make it very clear, I'm not remotely embarrassed to be doing this. This is a great book. It's not just bracing and very timely, um, but um, it's also short. And uh, I'm a fan of brevity. This is a bracingly short and to the point book on uh, a really, you could say, transcendingly important subject, um, uh, what, namely the nature of, of Donald Trump's presidency and, and what, it, what it means for the future of the republic, how we, how we deal with him. Um, and I should say also the subtitle from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. Well, and as a Brit, I've always thought Benedict Arnold was rather a nice chap, but you know, <laughs> we each have our we each have our opinions. Um, let me sort of ask you first of all, before we get into the more fraught subjects of whether a putative Biden administration um, uh, or a DOJ a DOJ under a putative Biden administration should should prosecute Trump or other courts. Um, let, let me just sort of ask you to set Trump in the context from Benedict, Benedict Arnold um, right through American history to today. Why does he stand out with a capital T as, as a traitor as much as, if not more, than many of the characters you deal so compellingly with in this book? I think it's not that he stands out more necessarily as a traitor um, but that he stands out very differently as a traitor. Um, you know, over the course of American history, there are a lot of people who betrayed the country, Benedict Arnold, other people during the revolution, Aaron Burr after his bad attempt at being the vice president and killing former Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, went off to try to start his own country. 
um, uh, which uh, led to him being charged with uh, treason, although ultimately he was not convicted. Um, you had in the run-up to the Civil War, obviously a great deal in the way of betrayals. Uh, some of them were not, you know, e- you know, egregiously bad. Some of them were actually heroic. John Brown, who um, uh, was an abolitionist, was actually convicted of treason by the state of Virginia uh, and hung for it. But, you know, I think as we look back and we see what he was trying to do, he would be seen as a as a hero. Uh, and then, as you know, you get into the 20th century, you have uh, uh, people who've been accused of being traitors or treason uh, who supported foreign enemies, the Germans in World War One, the Germans in World War Two, the Japanese in World War Two, the Soviets, um, the Chinese, um, and, uh, and, and others, Cuba. Uh, and so, you know, you look at all of those, and some of them are people selling secrets for money. And, and, and then you go up a, a level higher. And by the way, with all due respect, you know, Benedict Arnold wanted, wanted a cash payment for the secrets that he was revealing and, um, uh, and got it by the way, but, but, you know, it, you go up another level and there are people who did real damage um, to the country and its security, Benedict Arnold or, or 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 Aaron Burr, but certainly the Confederates who tore apart the country and led to the bloodiest war that the world has ever known until that time, uh, uh, were a special breed of traitors. Um, but none of them were president of the United States. None of them began by taking the oath of office that a president takes to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. None of them had the power that a president has, whether it's to embrace a foreign enemy as he did with the Russians, uh, uh, defend that enemy, forgive that enemy, reward that enemy, uh, advance their agenda, whether it's uh, you know unrest and confusion at home or um, a weakening of our alliances overseas. Um, uh, his betrayals are compounded by other kinds of betrayals, corruption, or putting himself before the country and dealing with COVID. Uh, and as a result, you have Donald Trump single-handedly, more successfully than the others, weakening the country, uh, strengthening our foreign enemies. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, were he to be reelected, all of that damage could be compounded. And so one of the things that makes this story of betrayal different is that it's not over yet. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if he's going to be reelected. We don't know if he's going to continue his relationship with the Russians or autocrats, or if he'll continue to chip away at the underpinnings of democracy in our society and so forth. And I think for all those reasons, it, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, a very, very different kind of story. Um, and, and we'll get into that in a minute. I should have mentioned at the beginning, because this is an interactive webinar, that questions um, should go in the Q&A column, and then I'll pick them up um, uh, in the next sort of half an hour, 40 minutes or so. Uh, the um, administration of George W. Bush 
um, carried out uh, uh, breaches of the Geneva Convention, including enhanced inter interrogation um, techniques in, in foreign sites, in black ops situations um, that, you know, involve torture for, you know, want of a better word. Um, and the Obama administration made the pragmatic decision uh, in 2009 just to let sleeping dogs lie. It made a similar decision, um, at least signaled one, on financial crimes committed in the 08 financial crisis and the subprime um, fraud that had gone on. Uh, do you think that that created a legacy of impunity that, that Trump now gives us a chance to correct? Was that a mistake that then Vice President Biden, possible President-elect and President Biden would be seeking to correct? Yeah, I think it was a mistake. Uh, you know, it's a mistake that's been made over and over in American history. Uh, when powerful people commit crimes afterwards, we tend to have people saying, well, you know, for the good of the country, let's, let's not prosecute them for their crimes. Nobody ever says that about a guy who robs the corner store, right? Um, uh, and, you know, you saw it with Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon. Would, would Donald Trump be so quick to commit crimes in office if he knew that Richard Nixon spent 10 years in jail? I don't think so. Uh, we did the same thing with the Iran-Contra crowd. Uh, and, and they were, you know, given a pass. Uh, would the people around Donald Trump have been so quick uh, to join in on obstruction of justice, for example, if they knew that people would be uh, held accountable? Uh, you're right. Barack Obama did the same thing uh, with um, with the Bush Cheney folks who promoted torture uh, and who, on false pretenses, waged a war in Iraq, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and so, you know, that I think also is an error. American presidents have been loath to you know, hold their predecessors accountable for fear they would be held accountable themselves. Americans have also taken a position with regard to international prosecutions that we fear the International uh, Criminal Court, the Hague, uh, because we're afraid that, you know, you know, bad forces overseas will use this and, and, and our, our politicians will get arrested. Um, but if we believe in a society of laws, rather than men, if we believe in, a, in the concept that no individual is above the law, then you have to live the concept. And right now, there are individuals above the law. Uh, the president of the United States, if he has a loyal attorney general and controls the majority party in the Senate, has complete impunity. We've seen that. He can commit any crime he wants, and he, he can get off. And I think if we want to fix our system and ensure it doesn't happen again, we've got to hold these people accountable. I had a chat, um, quite a long chat yesterday with Andrew Weissman, who was one of Robert Mueller's on, on his team um, of the special counsel investigation. Um, and we were talking a little bit about why Mueller bottled some of his conclusions, particularly on Trump's obstruction of justice. 
um, but also why Mala did not expect his conclusions, um, which in his world were pretty devastating, to be uh, so hijacked and uh, misleadingly presented by Bill Barr, um, the attorney, somebody he thought he knew as, a, as an honorable person. Um, what is it do you think um, that Mala got wrong and how important is it that he um, avoided some of the some of the huge subjects like the president's finances um, as well as stronger conclusions on obstruction of justice um, how important is it for Trump's relative impunity since then that that Mueller bottled his role or is that the wrong premise no, I don't think it's the wrong premise. I think it's one of the groups that essentially bottled up their role and didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, I think you could say the same for the Department of Justice prosecutors that should be independent uh, uh, and and able to pursue wrongdoing. The same could be said for um, uh, you know independent investigations within departments. The same could be said for the investigations of of the Congress. Um, but Mueller is a special case. It was thought that Mueller was going to go out and dig into this thing and he was going to have license to do that and that if there was wrongdoing, he would be able to prosecute it. But one thing that he did was he adopted this Office of Legal Counsel memo as, as though it were the law, saying that a sitting president could not be indicted. Well, First of all, it's not the law. There are legal scholars like Larry Tribe at Harvard and, and many, many, many others who don't think it should be the law. It's not implied in the Constitution. It's not stated in the Constitution that the president should be above the law in any way. Um, and I think that was a big mistake. Um, he also then capitulated to the guidance that he got, uh, we think, per Weissman from, from Rosenstein, not to dig into the president's finances. Well, of course, the president's finances speak to the issue of collusion, speak to the issue of um, motive uh, in, in this, and also speak to the issue of whether the president is compromised on an ongoing basis. So failure to look into that is outrageous. Um, and, and then, of course, with regard to um, the second part of his report, which dealt with the obstruction findings, um, you know, Mueller made a very strong case and said, we will leave it to the Congress. Uh, but Mueller knew that the Senate was controlled by the Republicans and Mueller gave them a loophole because he didn't make a recommendation to prosecute. He, you know, he said that was not his job. And then there is, of course, this final piece that you talk about where Mueller, who is one of the most senior seasoned investigators that there is, you know, was surprised, supposedly, that Barr would twist his words. Well, isn't that the kind of thing that you look out for? Isn't that the kind of thing you anticipate? Isn't that the kind of thing you get assurances about beforehand if you're a canny lawyer and you're a canny investigator? You know, there's there's a lot going on in this case where people who are, you know, world beaters are relying on excuses that wouldn't work for a third grader. 
Um, and Mueller, you know, is one of them. And, you know, another one, I, I was having a conversation on one of our podcasts a week ago with General uh, Jim Clapper, who was the former director of, of national intelligence. And we were talking about Trump and his ties to the Russians. And he said, well, I'm not sure he was a witting um, a colluder with the Russians, you know? And, and it's like, well, wait a minute. Here's a 70 X year old man who grew up during the Cold War where the Russians were our enemy, knew that the Russians were still uh, a rival and an enemy of the United States. Every human in this country knew that that was the case. When he reached out to the Russians, there was an outcry. When he colluded with the Russians, there was an outcry. And he kept doing it. And he didn't just keep doing it for a few days or a few weeks or a few months. He's done it for years. Now, at a certain point in those years, don't, don't we sort of send up a flare and say, okay, from now on, it's witty. You know, from now on, you know what you're doing. You know, there have only been a thousand articles and a thousand books written about this. Uh, you've only taken them in and, you know, lied about them for the past couple of years. You know, now, now, now you have to be held accountable. But people still say, well, I'm not sure he was witting in his collaboration with the Russians. Um, and that's just ludicrous. Let's say um, Trump does lose clear enough next Tuesday that, you know, there isn't a prolonged constitutional crisis. And then during the transition, he pardons himself. He gives him a, a full pardon um, for all um, federal crimes. Um, and I guess dares Biden to challenge that. And the only way the Supreme Court can hear that is not in the abstract, but it's through an actual case. Um, so let's say the DOJ do bring a case against him for obstructing investigations into foreign interference in American elections, which of course is about as big as you get in terms of the Constitution's aiding and abetting definition of treason. Um, and it goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's hearing as to whether a president can pardon himself and it rules that he can um it rules that that is within the exact implicit executive authority written by the the framers what do you what do we do then well that's a pretty bleak scenario um and i think you know an incoming administration needs to approach this very carefully but also systematically and resolutely First thing, you know, as Biden has said, is the Department of Justice is not his lawyer, doesn't work for him, and it is independent. And I think the Department of Justice and a Democratic Congress needs to investigate the crimes. I think we need to know who did what. Did Bill Barr obstruct justice? You know, did others in the government obstruct justice? Um, you know, was the president you know, uh, giving away secrets? Uh, was it a crime to, you know, give security clearances to people who shouldn't have had the security clearance? I don't give, do a long list, investigate, come to certain kinds of conclusions. Um, meanwhile, if the president has pardoned himself, I think you need to take a multi-tier strategy. First of all, states, he can't pardon himself with regard to state prosecution. And I think, you know, the states will pursue this. Uh, and I think the federal government should assist the states to the extent to which they have a clear path 
to prosecution. Having said that, there is a bigger issue with the Supreme Court. It is clearly um, uh, uh, compromised. Uh, it has been corrupted by uh, the approach of Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, it has been packed by them with conservatives. Uh, and I think the Democrats are going to have to come to grips with that. Um, and uh, clearly in the scenario you describe, I think they're going to have to come to grips with it sooner rather than later, because a partisan court filled with political hacks, and and we know, for example, Kavanaugh is a hack. All you have to do is read the Wisconsin decision he came up with yesterday, um, uh, and, and we can anticipate Coney Barrett is going to behave in a similar way. Um, you know, you're not going to you're not going to get justice in that circumstance. And so I, you know, I'm a believer that you have to look at right-sizing the court, perhaps increasing the size of the court to correspond as it has in the past to the number of uh, judicial circuits that there are out there, raise it to 13, um, uh, and you know, give yourself half a chance of getting to justice. But if you don't do that, and the court case comes to the Supreme Court, um, you're likely to lose. So pursue the states, make a decision about the court, do the investigation uh, by all means. And if you make the decision to rejigger the court, then, you know, pursue it, uh, you know, up and to the Supreme Court as well. Um, let me, I mean, I've got plenty of questions, but I don't want to um, deprive, uh, we've, we've already got 10 good questions, deprive others. So I'll sprinkle mine, you know, later on. Um, there is one from Robert Raines. Can you address the State Department brain drain and the dramatic shift away from soft power by Trump? Can this be undone, rebuilt after, uh, after how much the world has changed? Now, I guess that isn't directly related to the question of treason, um, but, okay. but it is related to the sort of larger um, um, weakening of America's national interests. Um, and, and, and given Mike Pompeo's role as Secretary of State, not that unrelated to the larger topic we're discussing today. Well, I don't think it is that unrelated on several levels. First of all, uh, you know, this is a State Department that took democracy and human rights off of its web page. It said it's not going to look at those things. That ties to the president's own view to democracy and his own view towards autocrats, uh, which is repellent. And then, you know, go a step further and, uh, um, you look at what has happened as the department has increasingly become a, a political tool of the White House, uh, and you've had many, many, many people leave under the Tillerson regime and then under the Pompeo regime, and it's going to take years and years because you know you don't create a diplomat overnight. You have to enter the Foreign Service. You have to train. You have to work your way up the system. And the people I know who are lifelong Foreign Service officers say fixing the damage on the personnel side is going to take a decade. It may take more than a decade. Um, and you know, fixing the damage to America's standing in the world, well, that's got several factors. You know, I think you know, Joe Biden would go and get on a plane immediately and go see our allies and say, I'm not Trump. And, you know, that'll help. And I think he'll get into the Paris Accord and you know, uh, uh, initiate the discussions regarding the JCPOA with Iran and uh, 
a look at you know picking up what happened with TPP and finding a different way to do that and looking at the intermediate nuclear cords and ensuring that new start continues and so forth and that'll help too um but you know at some point there's going to be a crisis in the world and at some point people are going to say is this the america that leads is this the america that leads from behind is this the america that supports the wrong side in these things and um uh it's going to take multiple instances of that for people to have confidence that the United States is going to return to the foreign policy that it's had for most of the past 75 years, promoting an international order, promoting it via a network of alliances, uh, and doing so with overarching goals of promoting democracy and human rights and market liberalization. Uh, I've, I'm going to uh, sort of bunch together these two questions from Diane Wanick and Jerry Guller. Um, Jerry Gillis says he hasn't yet read the book, but wants to know whether you discuss the Iran. Well, it's conflict. a short book. We could wait for him to read it and then he <laughs> yes. could ask the question at the end. Of... No, uh, go on. Well, you, you can you can tease him to reading it rather than um, uh, obviate him reading it. Um, okay. He wonders whether you discuss uh, the Iran-Contra, Oliver uh, North um, scandal, etc., because it seems like what they did puts them somewhere on this spectrum. And then uh, Diane Wanek, wouldn't uh, George H.W. Bush's decision to pardon with William Barr, with Bill Barr's help, the Iran-Contra criminals, be a similar kind of forbearance as Obama's? Um, well, uh, yeah, I do mention them. I do think it's an example of a breakdown uh, in the uh, executive branch. I do think um, that it was a mistake on the part of George H.W. Uh, Bush to let those guys off the hook. Uh, and I do think it's invited further mischief in this administration. Um, it's not one of Barr's good legacies, but on the other hand, I can't think of any good legacy for Barr. Um, uh, another very good question, and I'm then going to sort of insert one or two more of my own because... Um, uh, they're not presaged by this list, which is otherwise very good. Um, from Carol, um, Carolyn Spear, which is, I'm curious about whether other countries define treason the same way we do in the United States. Do our underlying First Amendment freedoms make this different for us? What would another country think about someone like Donald Trump if he were their chief of government and state? I think there are plenty of other countries where he could be prosecuted for betraying the country much more easily. I mean, if you take the evidence, he reached out to a foreign enemy. He said, I would seek your assistance. They assisted him. They did so in a way that actually violated the law. They did so in a way that actually violates campaign finance laws. Uh, they may have done so with undue leverage over him. Uh, they inserted in his team um, uh, uh, foreign agents, literally intelligence agents working for people like Paul Manafort and like Rudy Giuliani, uh, and, and the president continued to serve their interests ahead of American interests and had a whole set of interactions with their leader that we know nothing about, um, and presumably if we knew something about them, then we might 
we might have further evidence against him. I think in a lot of other countries that might lead to a prosecution. Obviously, in some more autocratic countries, it might happen more quickly than others. In our country, the issue of treason is uh, legally complicated because not only is it defined in the Constitution as aiding and abetting and providing comfort to a foreign enemy, uh, but the courts have subsequently determined that that means an enemy that we have declared war against. And so, you you know, unless we are in a state of war, a uh, country is not considered technically to be an enemy. And of course, I think that's an antiquated, silly idea. You know, it's one of many things in the Constitution uh, and our system of law that deserves some rethinking. Because if, for example, in, in if you live in the era of cyber war, cyber war goes on all the time. Um, and uh, the, the role of who is an enemy or an adversary is, is much murkier. Um, uh, and you need a certain number of witnesses to a specific act. And so it's very hard, and almost nobody is, is convicted uh, under, under treason laws per se. Uh, in fact, most of the people who are guilty of what you might consider treason during the past hundred years have actually been convicted of espionage. Uh, Ryan Janus asks, I can't imagine a more precarious national security risk at this moment than an administration purposefully sabotaging the transition of power. And yet we are now at a point where no one expects the Trump administration to be able or willing to put the goodwill effort into protecting our country by assisting the next incoming administration. What can or should be done now or in the future to reduce the risk of this transitionary moment for our democracy. So I guess Trump scorched earth if he loses next week. What could we do to stop that? Well, first of all, you have to um, assume the worst, not necessarily because he will do the worst, but I think we need to be skeptical. Um, I, I, I think one has to assume that the civil service, which is vast, um, understands its obligations. Uh, and even though Trump is working hard to try to gut the civil service and plant his own people within it to protect him, it's vast. Um, and, and, and it's not going to be possible to do that. And I think, you know, we joke a little bit about the deep state, we particularly on deep state radio, but but the reality is deep state are the heroes in many respects of these cases. They um, they maintain the, the focus on the national interest when the political actors are focusing on party interest or personal interest. And I think we can, we can rely on that. I think we can rely on the fact that the incoming administration, if it were Biden administration, is going to be a group of people who are extremely experienced in these areas. I know the people, you know the people who are around Biden and whether they're the national security people or they're the economic policy people, they've been in the government, they've been in the government a long time. They know where the bodies are buried. They know how things are supposed to work. And that competence will serve as a, a kind of a, a guard or uh, you know, a, a, an assurance um, that if Trump tries to fiddle something uh, it will come to light and and be corrected. So, you know, I think all those things are important. I think vigilance is also going to be important. Um, but there is one thing that we've got going for us, and that is Trump is an idiot, and and that you know he you know he's a bad guy, and he has no values whatsoever, and he's unfit for the office. Um, 
but you know he he often you know because he can't help himself tips his hand and and i'll give you an example um he said don't trust mail-in ballots and then he got his post you know postmaster general to to game the the postal department and so what happened 60 plus million people have already voted everybody's like okay i'm not going to leave it to you and and you've got 45 percent of the number of people who voted the last time around have already voted and we've still got a week to go why because trump couldn't keep his mouth shut he you know he started touting this this story about mail-in ballots and 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 everybody said well i'm not going to play that game i it's too important to me uh and so the people you know sort of rose up and i and i think you know we may look back i am hoping we'll look back on this and we'll say um they outsmarted him uh let me club together um two similar questions one from suzanne hitchcock bryan which is isn't bar a, a traitor how can he still hold a license to practice law and another from diane wadek which is how about the men around the traitors who are willing and enabling partners in their treasonous acts? Should they not also be held accountable? Let's be held accountable. Uh, you know, the law is the law. If somebody obstructs justice, they need to be held accountable for obstructing justice. They lie under oath. They need to be held accountable for lying under oath. If they fail to follow a lawful subpoena, they need to be held accountable for failing to follow a lawful subpoena. If the law says that they need to submit information to the Congress and they withhold that information for political reasons, then they need to be held accountable. If they they know of wrongdoing um, and they they overlook that wrongdoing or they defend that wrongdoing, they need to be held accountable. Is Barr one of those people? He absolutely is. And, and there have already been hundreds and hundreds of lawyers who've called for him to be disbarred. Um, but, you know, Mnuchin has gone along with this with regard to the taxes. And, uh, and he's, you know, so-called one of the good guys. And Pompeo has been out, you know, campaigning against the law, you know, again, you know, and people have violated the Hatch Act up the wazoo. And, 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 you know, should all these people be held accountable? Yeah. I mean, should we be out there searching for sort of second tier offenses, you know, so we can push up the numbers? No, we need to focus on where it will send a message. And then we need to change the laws to ensure that we're not relying on normative standards like, well, you know, no president would ever do that. So we don't need a law. That's been one of our mistakes. We need to set much more clear guide rails within our system. Um, interesting question here from Brian Reynolds, um, who's looking forward to reading your book. For decades, we've worked to align the international legal framework with US domestic law, the Hague being the notable exception. The consequence, however, is that presidential rule breaking is now often international rule breaking or even a crime against humanity, thinking here of kids in cages. How long do you think until the international community seeks a more aggressive pursuit of former U.S. officials? I hope it's not long. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. i sorry. I know this is not a popular position. The United States is very protective of its own sovereignty, but you can't create an international system uh, of laws in which the strongest player has the ability to opt out 
Uh, and that's what the United States has been trying to do for a long time. It's been trying to have its cake and eat it. Uh, and I think in this particular case, what we need to do is we need to um, reinvest in international law and send a message that um, we are not apart from that system and we will abide by that system. Uh, and if this makes future presidents wary of undertaking illegal wars or using drones illegally or assassinating foreign leaders illegally or putting children in cages or torturing people in Guantanamo, that's a good thing. We shouldn't be doing those things. We have other options. And in every single one of those cases, we had better options. And so having the law in place will actually guide us to better policies. Uh from Kathleen O'Keefe, uh, so many figures have been turned in this quotation marks in, in this administration. Why should we think that the electors are immune from this kind of pressure? They're not anonymous. Uh, I, I don't know that we, we, we can assume that. Many people have talked about state legislatures um, guiding their electors to behave uh, in a way that's uh, inconsistent with the underlying will of the people. And again, um, both campaigns have armies of lawyers out there to protect their interests. Uh, I think the best thing that we can do in this particular case, when we know that one side is willing to break the law, bend the rules, you know, fiddle things from behind, uh, is, is that you need the biggest turnout possible, the biggest margins possible, and you need to have a very, very clear uh, outcome and mandate. Uh, I also think it is essential that the Democrats turn the Senate because, you know, if if Mitch McConnell remains the Senate majority leader, none of the reforms that we're talking about here as being necessary will be undertaken. Uh, Carolyn Boylan, I read that Biden, in terms of the Supreme Court packing question, has said he would establish a commission to review the court over 180 days. Isn't that a kiss of death for taking action? To remedy the GOP having politicized uh, the Supreme Court? Could be. You know, commissions are what people in Washington typically do if they don't want to take action. Um, uh, you know, creates the what I call the illusion of action. But uh, it could also provide the kind of bipartisan cover for massive reform that is essential. Uh, there have been some commissions in our history, not the 9-11 Commission, but others, which have led to major legal reforms. I think in this case, because the judicial system is so important, there does need to be some kind of bipartisan cover. It just depends on how it's managed by Biden. Uh, and I think we should be under no illusions. These processes are, you know, are not organic. They don't take place in a vacuum. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they don't pursue some idealized course. If he wants a good outcome, he needs to put the right people in charge of it. He needs to set the right schedule. He needs to ensure that certain issues are addressed. And he needs to make sure that the way the commission is set up does not presuppose an outcome, but it doesn't preclude critical outcomes. Uh, and it leads to the kind of full consideration of major reforms that are necessary. And I, I would be lying to you if I, if I didn't say I'm apprehensive. I'm apprehensive 
that the Democrats will be strong enough to produce the reforms to the Supreme Court, uh, to, to fixing the court packing, uh, to, to, to a number of uh, other areas like campaign finance reform that are absolutely essential if we don't want to end up where we are now again in four years. Uh, I'm going to ask the final two questions. Uh, I mean, read them out, and then I've got one of my own a fingers on buzzer question moment. Um, uh, question. Um, Noel Clehane, would willfully undermining key alliances e.g. NATO, rise to the level of treason for the purposes of this book, referencing the parlous state of transatlantic relations? Well, it doesn't rise to the level of treason for the reasons I just said. Does it rise to the level of betraying the country? I think it does rise to the level of betraying the country. Uh, if you are undermining the alliance in order to serve the explicit or implicit objectives of a foreign enemy who happens to have taken you under his wing, it's even more of, a, of an egregious betrayal. And I think it's a, it's a prime example of how Donald Trump has served the agenda of Vladimir Putin. Well, this is a variation on, on you know, many types of, 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 of questions on this subject, but from Caroline Spear again, assuming that Biden wins and he does undertake all of this prosecution and investigation, I guess with your caveats, David, in mind that he's not directing the DOJ day to day how to behave. Um, how can his government also go about the business of governing? If we can only do one thing, rebuild the government or go after the people who broke the law, uh, which is more important to prioritize? The United States government doesn't work that way. The United States government is the biggest organization on the planet Earth. If the United States government can't deal with climate change, deal with COVID, deal with the rise of China, deal with Russia, deal with restoring international law, deal with administering the borders, deal with providing essential services all at once, can't do its job. So the United States government's got to be able to do multiple things well. And the objective of the chief executive is to allocate the resources to be able to achieve those goals and to prioritize the things that need to be done soonest. And um, inertia works and plays a big role in Washington. So you need people behind it pushing. Uh, I think we can do all the things we need to do. Um, but I also think that the president of the United States is going to have to say, I am not going to sacrifice um, the future of our judicial system because we have this problem with COVID. I'm not going to sacrifice the future of democracy in the United States because we have this problem on our borders. He's got to say that those things are among his top priorities. Um, and and I, I hope and, and, and trust to some degree that he will. Uh, let me ask you uh, in conclusion, although I have one final one after this, um, about the what I like to think of as the Al, Al Capone analogy. You know, it took an accountant to get him on, on taxes rather than, um, you know, on his real crimes. Um, isn't that likelier to be the path with Trump, that it's going to be state's attorney general, particularly in New York, um, that are going to get him on bank fraud or, you know, um, tax evasion rather than um, at the federal level, the grander crimes of treason that you've been talking about? Um, but I just want to reemphasize, I've not been talking about crimes of treason. I've been talking about being a traitor. 
Um, but but uh, uh, I, I do think that the states focusing on, on violation of tax laws and fiddling as businesses are going to have a clearer shot. And I think they should pursue that. Um, I would add that the federal government has another avenue, right? They can investigate and they can find areas where they think the law is inadequate and has not done its job with Trump and it can pass new laws. And so it can find ways to investigate Trump and then ensure that it doesn't happen in the future um, without actually um, uh, addressing the issue of whether Trump is convicted for them. Um, but this is a lifelong tax fraudster, if you believe what you read in the New York Times, and I do. This is somebody who has had long ties to foreign enemies. Uh, this is somebody who has done many things on many levels wrong. I think wherever we can hold him accountable, we should. And wherever we see that there are flaws in our system he took advantage of, we should patch the holes. And my final, my final question is, what chances do you think that Trump is going to end up behind bars. What would what would what odds would you give that? Um, I want to set my personal preferences aside. I, you know, I, I would I would I would rate it a ten to twenty percent chance. Um, the, the reality: he's a rich man who knows how to play the delay game in the courts. He's seventy-four years old. Uh, he gets out of office, trials start. We've seen what happens with these things. Between trials and appeals, this is somebody who could you know, keep any of these things going for five or six years. He's 80 years old at that point. He may not even be alive at that point. We don't know. So uh, you know, sh- do, I, do I think he's somebody, a, a you know, criminal? Would, would America be better off with the example of Donald Trump in prison? Yes. I think it would, but I, I don't see it as a high likelihood. Um, well, that's um, a, a, an interesting, uh, well, a, 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 a thought worth pondering um, on which to end this um, fascinating discussion. You've dealt with a lot of questions. There are a lot of other questions, um, but you've, you've um, hit quite a few of them out of the park. I'd strongly recommend people read, read David's book. Um, and um, of course, recommend this podcast to other people so they can hear about it. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ed, for taking the time to do this. And I didn't know the questions in advance. And I really appreciate your, you know, covering as much ground as you did. I appreciate everybody who joined in. By the way, those of you who did join in, you know, you're entitled to get a book for this. If you send an email to david at uh, the dsrnetwork.com, uh, and say, this is how I'd like my book inscribed. I'll inscribe the book that way. If you don't, I'll just send you a book signed by me. But if you want to sign it to your, you know, your uncle Bob or, or give it to somebody for Christmas and write something in it, just go to David at the dsrnetwork.com, send an email and I'll, uh, I'll, 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 I'll personalize it however you like. Um, and, uh, as Ed said, um, uh, we hope you'll keep listening to this podcast. Uh, those of you who um, uh, are members will hear it in advance, but we'll, we'll, we'll make it public in 24 hours or so. Uh, and those of you in the public who are listening, you can go to the dsrnetwork.com and see what else we've got in store. We've got uh, episodes upcoming on election security. We have our regular episodes. We have episodes on 
COVID. We have our, our Monday episodes that Ed and Rosa and Corey and David Sanger and I have been doing now in one form or another for many years, which deal with national security and foreign policy, and sometimes with politics. So go to the dsrnetwork.com, see what's in store. Um, and thank you all for joining this and stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>